Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 127 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we focused on some of our favorite presentation tips for panel presentations as a second part in our three-part series on presentation tips. In this third and final part of the series, we'll talk about the unique challenges of presenting in the webinar format. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be talking about presentation tips when you're giving a webinar. Uh, in our second segment, we'll talk about a new court decision in Europe on Google and the right to be forgotten that's uh, been getting a lot of interest recently. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's get started with our first segment, and that is webinar presentations. I tend to find that I am giving a lot more webinar presentations these days. The technology is better. I don't have to travel anywhere. The group that's giving the webinar doesn't have to spend money for me to travel to them. You know, but while, while you are spared that hassle of, of travel, uh, I think webinars are far from uncomplicated and, and sometimes can present a whole lot more problems than live presentations. Uh, Dennis, I know many presenters who say that that, that lack of audience feedback is uh, is by far the biggest challenge when you're presenting in a webinar format, not being able to see and interact with your audience, I think really does affect a presentation. Should I assume you will not be taking a contrarian approach uh, to that? No, I won't. But uh, your comments about how much the uh, the savings are on travel expenses uh, does make me wonder why we don't get paid more to do do webinars since there should be a little extra in the budget with, the, with those travel expenses saved. But um, I do think the lack of audience feedback is is just a huge thing, and that's it, especially true for speakers who really thrive on the audience energy or or really rely on audience response to get a feel for how their presentation is going over. And it is a really tricky thing because you just don't. Uh, there's nobody out there. There's no uh, happy face. There's no no one nodding off. There's not that friendly face who who's, who's nodding their head to what you say. Um, and I, I think that can be that can be really tricky. And then also, I, I think that energy uh, of the audience that's missing too is is difficult. And so you can find yourself in that. Uh, I, I know I found myself in a webinar just sort of wondering like if there's anybody out there and what they're doing or if anybody's even hearing what I'm saying. So it, it is very unique in, in the, the feeling you get as a presenter. Well, I think that the, you know, the, the, the one reason why it kind of is, I think, a little bit creepy is that um, most of the webinars are muting their attendee lines so that um, there isn't talking. I, I know that if they don't mute it, then then we're going to hear them talking to other people in their office. We're going to hear wait music if they put the phone on hold, because they always put the phone on hold. Um, and it's just, and we'll, we'll hear, you know, a lot of 
distortion if, if people are using cell phones and are, and are having a bad connection. So I get why they do it, but uh, all you hear is dead silence. And, and I think it's, it's very unnerving. I think that if you're presenting alone, it's actually a little bit worse than if you're presenting with somebody. At least with somebody, you can have a, a conversation and go back and forth. But uh, if it's just you talking, it's kind of it's kind of like talking out into the void, and and you have no idea whether whether people are uh, are hearing you or, or not. And I that's that's kind of the, the most challenging uh, webinars that I have, and that's kind of why I I enjoy the ones that that take make use of good technology platforms that you can interact either with the attendees by chat or by question, or at the very least uh, interact with the moderator and the, the other other people that might be on the panel with you. Yeah, and, and I think that's true that the, the ones that you're doing solo are just really tough because sometimes I remember a couple times I just feel like I'm I'm talking and, and I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like I'm alone in the room and just, you know, chattering away and it's just it just gives you kind of kind of an odd odd feeling. Uh so that aspect where it is so quiet that is tricky and, and so it's like you're just talking on the phone. I, I mean it really is a sense, I guess, that in some ways, being on radio or podcasting even are similar, but uh, but at least you know in our case, there's we're talking to each other. But you know, even if you're you're speaking yourself, Tom, there there's are a lot of factors uh, that I think are different than when you're presenting in a room full of people. Yeah, I think it is different because you're having to – let me come back on that and say it can be different. It doesn't have to be. It, it depends on on the type of webinar that you're giving. If you're just giving a straight PowerPoint presentation, you have no control over it, and you're just sitting in front of a monitor watching somebody move slides for you, then you're just talking there on the phone, and you can say whatever you want. And so there there aren't a ton more factors uh, that, that, that that you have to deal with. But uh, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm starting to be involved a lot more with webinars where the technology platforms are more advanced we, you know the speakers take more control over um, over the presentation itself and you know with great control comes great responsibility uh, you've got to you got to keep track of a whole lot of moving pieces and make sure that uh, you know you've got to, to make sure that your phone is connected uh, you know they all talk about getting on a landline and I'm starting to see people not using landlines anymore I mean my landline here at home where I usually do webinars is it, for me actually not as reliable as my cell phone um, sometimes I've actually gotten on Skype and, and done webinars there which I think would make most webinar present uh, the, the, the hosts freak out. Um, but you've got to worry about uh, keeping that connection up. Uh, you've got to worry about whether you can see the screen, whether you can see it, what's going on. You sometimes have the, the moderators trying to talk to you in a back channel chat or something like that. And so there's a lot more demands on, I think, your attention, which, which can make it a little bit more distracting, a little bit harder and more complicated to uh, that you've got to pay attention to a lot of moving pieces. You know, it is different when you're talking uh, on the phone. Like you said, there is a you know a big emphasis on using landlines when you're on on webinars, and and I, you lose the visual cues uh, to know exactly when a co-presenter is stopping and ready to throw things to you, and that can make it tricky, especially when you're not used to to working with people, and and then depending on who's producing the webinar, there can be a ton of different instruction, uh, instructions and and 
different platforms you're using. And I, th- I think you're right. You do sort of feel sometimes that you, there's this dashboard with instant messages coming at you, questions coming from the audience, the slides moving, and then you're just kind of trying to keep track of what's going on. And then also webinars tend to be they want you to be really tight on on time. So it just seems like there can be a lot going on. And, and then if you're sitting at your desk, uh, I mean, it's same as presenting live, I've just had, it's unbelievable all the things that will happen to you of, of some technical problem happening while, you know, somebody is calling you on your cell phone or, or and, you know, and all sorts of other things going on and you're trying to smoothly present a <laughs> webinar. Yeah, I think that the hardest thing really is to get a handle on the technology that you have to use. I think, frankly, using a PowerPoint uh, is probably the easiest way of, of presenting a webinar. But uh, as for, for me, I mean, there, there are times, and frankly, most of my webinars these days are about presenting on the iPad. And uh, it's very difficult to give a presentation on the iPad on a webinar because um, you have to present the iPad screen onto your computer monitor for people to be able to see it. And and if you've got a technology platform, if the webinar doesn't have the ability to share your screen, if you're only limited to looking at the screen of the webinar provider, whoever's providing and hosting the webinar, then you've got a problem. You know, if I want to show an app or if I wanted to show a Word document or a spreadsheet or if I wanted to show something from my computer, I'm really liking these days the, the platforms that allow you to take control and show things rather than have to rely on the webinar provider's platform. I, I know that there are some platforms that we've had real challenges with. I know one that, that, that the technology has such an issue that we have to actually record a screencast in advance so they can show that rather than actually have us do any kind of demonstration live. And I think those are the things you have to work through ahead of time. I think you have to understand what's the platform, how are we going to use it, and that's why I think that having a rehearsal with with the platform and with the technology and with your co-presenters and with the moderator and the people who handle the phones and all those people, having a rehearsal ahead of time, a couple of days ahead of time is really, really important because you want to make sure that you want to make sure that you're all in sync and and, and that helps in, in case you have to, uh, if something goes wrong, you at least have had that experience in, in working through what the platform looks like. Yeah, I really like working with the the people at ALI um, because they do that. So usually there's a lot of communication ahead of time. You know, sometime within a week before or a couple days before the actual presentation, uh, there's you you do a walkthrough of the technology, and that way you can identify problems because sometimes I tend to be the one who has some of these problems. But it could be that one person can't can't move the slides forward or have trouble seeing things or it's not working on their browser or their computer. There would be some other issue. And you get that identified uh, ahead of time, then usually the other presenter can can drive the slides, as we say, or, or, or do these other things. And you have a sense of what will work and, and what won't and what backup you might uh, want to have it have in place. But I think that, you know, again, it'd be nice to do like a total walkthrough of things, but you sort of lose, to me, I don't like doing that because uh, you lose the energy or the 
have the potential to lose the energy in the actual presentation, but kind of knowing like how to move the slides forward, um, practicing with how the questions will appear, how you can how you can instant message the other presenter or the host, and getting a the script in hand ahead of time, I think I think are all great things. And when you get those things when you're doing a webinar, you really appreciate how professional. Uh, I mean, the difference between a really professional webinar and one that's kind of been thrown together. Well, but when you, when you say scripting, let's make sure that we, we're talking about the same thing because when I think of scripting, and I agree that it's important to have a structure and, and you know the best webinar providers will send you um, a shell that will have all of the predetermined language at the beginning and the end of the webinar to kind of get you into the webinar. But once you're in, I, I really, I think I really have an issue with scripting. I'm just not a fan of it. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of having an outline so that you know what you're going to talk about. But um, for me, uh, having a script for an online webinar is the equivalent to a person reading their slides out while they're sitting there in an in-person presentation. It just sounds stiff. It doesn't sound natural to me. You know, I've, I've had a lot of experience reading some scripts, and I think that I can read a script. I've done it for the podcast occasionally where I've read lines that I wrote down ahead of time while I was prepared. Um, and I like to think that I sound natural, but I think most people don't practice enough for that. And, and I think that that having that outline with your talking points and being comfortable with the subject um, is really important. I have had webinars where I wasn't comfortable with the subject, where I didn't know it as as well as I wanted to, and so I did actually script it out. And those were probably my, my least favorite webinars because I just felt so wooden while I was giving the presentation. I just didn't feel like I was uh, was was being very natural there. Yeah, I, I and I agree with you. I think it's that introduction, the conclusion, you know, knowing where the the uh, the moderator is speaking, where the uh, the phone operator is reading instructions, because it is it is funny that sometimes when you're introducing somebody you know, you can and you don't think you need to write out what their bio is, uh, you can really stumble all over yourself. So some of those things at the start. Um, I think it's really helpful to to have that written out in front of you. Um, but once I'm in in the presentation, I I just sort of want to have a clear idea of and and with uh, you know with most co presenters, it's just sort of we have the slides and we have an initial on them to know who's taking what slide and and then have an option within that to say if there's something you want to add, you can you can jump in and so the script. In a funny sense, is is just more that kind of kind of guideline, and uh, you know, speaking of slides, time, I I, th- I think there's also a big difference in the types of slides that you want to do in a webinar versus live, um, but it's but it's it's sort of tricky at the same time, and and this kind of goes back to what you were saying of showing what's what's on your iPad or doing live demos are are the same sort of thing, but. I think because you 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 know you picture your audience typically maybe listening on a speakerphone um, in their office, uh, sort of doing other things, having lunch while they're doing the the presentation. There's the, I think a tendency to put more information on this on the screen than you might do if you're you're presenting live, and that can get a, a little tricky because sometimes you're not used to it. I'm not used to putting that you know level of information on a slide. 
Um, so that can make it harder to prepare. But you're trying to think of what what people might be looking at. Then also in those in the webinar platform, sometimes the slides because it'll show you the current slide and the upcoming slide. And sometimes the slides that you actually see on your screen, you as the presenter, are a lot smaller than full screen. And so if you have a really complex slide with small font or even a, a screenshot that you're going to talk about, sometimes it can be hard to see or hard to hard to read in a presentation to know exactly what's there. So, I mean, you do really want to be comfortable with your presentation because it may surprise you when you, you know, you look at a slide and say, uh-oh, I can't really read what's, what's on that slide. Well, that's why I think it's important to either do a printout of your presentation so you've got your slides in front of you, or I don't give a webinar without, I mean, my usual setup is two monitors, and I'll I'll throw the presentation up and follow along with the slides on the other monitor if I have the chance to do that. I think I disagree with you a little bit on the format of the presentation. In terms of how I view, you know, creating a a slide deck or a PowerPoint uh, presentation for that, I really don't consider my my webinar audience any different. I, I, I suppose that there's that it's true that if you're going to expect that people are not going to pay as much attention while they're on the phone, then you want to include more on the slide so they can take away more after the webinar. And I suppose that makes some sense. But I tend to give materials anyway, and so I don't necessarily rely on my PowerPoint to do that. So I guess I'd, I give the presentation that I want to give, whether it's whether it's got a lot of text or not, and I really don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. How do you like to handle a question and answer? I mean, they're, they're, the, even though we don't get to interact a lot with the attendees, um, there is question and answers at, at various times during the presentation or at the end when they open up the phone lines or whatever it is for questions. Is there a, a way that you like to handle it, or what what experiences have you had? Well, again, it depends on the platform a little bit, but it seems like most of the platforms these days allow people to submit questions during the presentation. And that can be really great because if you if you see questions where, you know, you like you've used some acronym or you've done something that you assume everybody knows and you get a question about that, you can correct that quickly. Or if somebody doesn't understand something or asks a question, you can incorporate it right into what your presentation is. So you can you can almost answer the question right away or, or make it part of the the presentation. It gives you some feedback. And then the questions at the end, I really, I tend to like when they just come in almost as a, it's sort of like you're being texted or emailed the questions rather than to do the talk show, take a caller uh, thing, because you don't know exactly what to expect there. And because when you have those written questions, you can kind of take them in the order that you want and then emphasize some points. And then both or all three presenters can see those those questions and you can figure out who to to respond to so i really like the q and a format uh, on webinars yeah, I um, I don't mind having uh, questions come from out of left field. That kind of makes it interesting and mixes it up a little bit. I will say that the way I usually like to handle questions is to say, just like you said, that if a question comes in that is directly on point for something we're talking about, to correct something or explain something, or how much is that app that you just mentioned cost, or what was the name of it, or something like that, I think it makes a lot of sense to handle those questions in time. But I will invariably, we get questions that are out of 
left field that have nothing to do with the topic that I'm talking about. And I prefer to handle those at the end and say, let's, let's just talk about all those at the very end. And, and while, while you're right, it's nice to have those there so you can kind of think about what you want to answer. I also kind of like the, the extemporaneous nature of it and, and kind of talking off the cuff when you're dealing with it. We're about to, to run out of time for this particular segment. Why don't we talk a little bit about kind of our best suggestions? What are some tips that you have for people who might, who are going to be presenting webinars who maybe don't, don't do it a whole lot? Well, two things that I, I want to want to point out. One one is that when you're talking with other people, and, and and you just think about it on webinars that you listen to, that it can be really difficult to tell who's who when when you're speaking. Right. And so I, so I think when you uh, transition from one speaker to another, that if you use somebody's name. You know, so if I say, so Tom, uh, you have the next slide, even something as simple as that, then over the course of the webinar, I think that helps the listener uh, understand who's who. And that's sort of, I think, a, a radio technique. The other thing is that you really need, need to give a lot of thought to controlling uh, your environment. And uh, that really means avoiding. Uh, interruptions and extraneous sounds and you know from you know turning off your cell phone to warning other if you're doing it from your house warning the other people in your house that you're recording and for them not to make noise and you know so doing everything you can and, and sort of you know, you might turn off fans and all that that sort of thing so give some thought to that and th- there are some things you can't control where you know, like the sirens and and stuff like that but uh, one of my favorite things ever was I was finishing up a webinar and uh, I saw these guys in hard hats walk outside my house while I was <laughs> was speaking and I finished the webinar and I Two minutes after I was done, they started. It was a cable company. They were trimming uh, limbs around the cable line in the backyard. So there's all this chainsawing noise that would have been going on during the webinar if they would have come a few minutes earlier. Well, you know, and my my biggest challenge here is that I have. Uh I have three dogs working out of the house. I have three dogs who um, who will begin to bark at the slightest provocation to defend the house against any and all intruders and or other dogs. And uh, it is one of my checklist items before I do a webinar is to uh, bring them downstairs and give them some treats and then lock them out of the room so that they can't get anywhere near and hopefully don't make any noise while it's happening. My two biggest tips uh, are, first, prepare with your co-presenter. Uh, we talked about panel discussions in the past and we talked about presenting with other people that you may not know. Um, I think that that you can get away with not preparing with your co-presenter better in person because you're sitting there right next to them and you can look at each other or whisper or pass notes or do things that, that can make up for your lack of preparation that you do not get those opportunities when you're giving a, a webinar with somebody. So if it's somebody you've never pre- presented with before, you know, take the time to have a conference call with them and say, here's how I'd like to do this and here's how we'll do the slides and reach some level of agreement about how things will happen. I think, I think it'll, it'll make for a much better webinar. And then this wouldn't be a legal technology podcast if, if the tip wasn't something along the lines of understanding the technology that's being used to do the webinar. Unless you're just logging into a browser and you're watching your PowerPoint being advanced by someone else far away and you're just talking on a phone, it really pays to, uh, to understand the technology, to know what it is that that's being used and and how to make use of it yourself so that you can make the the webinar as successful as you can from your end 
All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's uh, take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. There's a recent ruling in Spain about something called the right to be forgotten and the requirement Google might or might not have to stop displaying negative information on on its search results pages. The facts are sort of unique, but the decision raises a number of important issues people have been talking about for a long time, and it's certainly created a lot of discussion in the last few days. Tom, you really wanted to talk about this topic, so uh, why don't you give us a little background on it and give us your take on the issues? Yeah, I did want to talk about this because I, I really think that it signals some potentially big issues for search engines coming down the road. If Again, if it means what we think it means and if uh, courts are going to enforce this against search engines, I think it could potentially be huge, although maybe not here in the United States. This is a case that's actually in front of the European Court of Justice, biggest court in the European Union, and it involves a man from Spain. He, um, his house was repossessed, I think, 16 years ago, um, and it was posted on a website. And Google, of course, has a link to this page. It's indexing all the pages on the internet, so Google Spain has a link to the page that shows it's repossessed. And the man claimed that because the matter was closed, um, it should no longer be linked to Google, so that whenever somebody searches for his name, um, they don't see that 16 years ago his house was repossessed. And the court... The court actually declined to to hold the website itself responsible for having that information up there, but they found that Google had bigger responsibility, saying that Europeans in general have a right to be forgotten, which frankly is not surprising to me given the fact that Europeans place a much higher priority on privacy, um, on personal information, but it's, it's already actually having huge effects because the decision came down, I think, on Tuesday or Wednesday and already Google is receiving many, many, many requests from Europeans requesting that information be, I guess, delinked in the search engines. Uh, and Google right now is trying to figure out what's the right balance. Is the balance between right to be forgotten and the right to know? And, and then who's the arbiter of that? Who has to make that decision? Is Google going to make the decision? Uh, you know, if it does, it's going to add a another layer of complexity to Google's work. Do they have to verify the person is who they say it is? Do they have the power to judge the merit of the request? Or, you know, what happens if they just refuse? Obviously, if they refuse, then the person can take them to court and there'd have to be a whole adjudication on that. And 
I, I don't think it's going to catch on the United States. You know, here, the, the First Amendment would really be an obstacle to that because I think we've seen people make demands to take information down about uh, information that's defamatory or in violation of copyright, and the courts are very good about that. But when it comes to facts being on the internet, I think that there'd be a huge pushback, you know, both from the technology companies that we're seeing and, and from the folks who actually like the First Amendment. What I really think is interesting here is that these claims are going to Google. It's not going to the original web page that's posting the information, which to me shows that people believe that if you can't find it on Google, it doesn't exist. And maybe that's a simplistic way of putting it, but I think it very very well might be true. And it, I think it has the potential to change the way that we're going to think about search engines in the future. If the search engines continue to follow the requests of these people who want to be forgotten? Can we trust them to give us an unvarnished view of information? Or are we really know that we're getting the full picture? Is that is that kind of the sense that you're getting out of this too, Dennis? Yeah, and and I think it illustrates a couple of a couple of things that we've we've seen over the years. One is the the so-called Streisand effect. So we may not know anything about this guy, and he he wants us to he wants to have this right to be forgotten. But we do know that he had this issue 16 years ago, and so now there's more attention than there ever would have been just because it shows up in a Google search, uh, I guess, on his name, which we would have never done except now we know about the case, and everybody's going to be talking about the case, so people are going to be looking for it. So it's kind of this sort of reverse effect that typically goes by the, the Streisand effect. You know, when when you don't want attention paid to you, and by talking about it on the internet, you get more attention. I, I think it also touches on the really interesting issue of when you there are facts in the public record that in the old days used to be really you know, cumbersome to find. You had to go to the courthouse. You might have to look on microfilm. And now they're easy to find and they're easy to aggregate. Does that aggregation of, you know, each bit of each part of the information, which is public, is the aggregation of it somehow, it definitely feels like an invasion of our privacy. But, you know, how how does that really work? And how do you you think through that? Then you said there, the focus on Google is interesting too, because isn't the same issue with other search engines or you know you know other web properties news organizations that link to that and isn't the the web itself all about hyperlinking so it it also feels like another one of those cases where you know judges the courts uh, regulators kind of don't have a good sense of what hyperlinking is and how essential it is to the internet and then, then finally, I, I think what you touch on is, is that confidence that you have in Google or another search engine giving you what seems to be objective results. You know, I, I think our confidence has been diminished because of the way the that SEO works in the way that people can sort of game search results. But now if we know that Google has to be involved in taking things down and not showing certain things, then does our confidence in the objectivity and the completeness of search results, is that going to be impacted negatively? And it sort of feels like it might be. I, I think that what makes this really unworkable is that that 
the European court is now really inserting an entire level of administration into this whole process that I think they're expecting the search engines, Google, Yahoo, whoever, to, to undertake. Now, certainly Google's got the money. They could do it if they wanted to. They could establish a, you know, a department of the right to be forgotten where they handled all those requests. I mean, they get lots of takedown requests every day and, you know, lots of, lots and lots of takedown requests for YouTube. They're getting every day for copyright violations. Um, but now the question is, it's, it's easier to, to see a copyright violation than it is to see other things. Uh, what if I just submitted something and said I had a different name and I actually said I was somebody different from who I was and I had things that were removed from the internet that somebody didn't want removed? I, I just really think there's a lot of, of risks here that the court, again, probably because they weren't really thinking, they're thinking more in terms of protecting the person and then their privacy than, uh, than what the implications of this in the long term could be. Yep. Now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So we've uh, done a three-part series now on presentations, so I figure that for those of you who are using PCs and who do use PowerPoint, I could not recommend more Paul Unger's book, PowerPoint in One Hour for Lawyers. The one-hour books from the ABA really are terrific because they're not huge, massive reference materials that you're going to have to spend hours going through. It's a book that's about 150 to 200 pages. It's got very succinct information on how to use PowerPoint to tell a story, to to persuade juries to use it in the right circumstances and not use it in the wrong circumstances. Paul does a really good job making PowerPoint explainable and understandable. So if you're going to give a presentation with PowerPoint and you still don't feel comfortable enough with it, because I know a lot of people who aren't, get a copy of Paul's book. And as people know, I, I like to recommend podcasts that really make you think. And, and I'm a big fan of Clayton Christensen, who's known for The Innovator's Dilemma. And when you hear uh, about disruption and disruptive technologies, that's sort of his concept. September uh, 2013, there's a, he did a presentation. There's uh, audio available. It's on uh, some of his new thinking called The Capitalist Dilemma, which I, I think is, uh, takes innovation to a broader level and it's really interesting in terms of how it describes what happens in economies over time and how innovation plays a part. I think it has implications for lawyers too. Definitely worth an hour of your time to listen to this. It was comes from the RSA, which is the Royal Society for the Encouragements of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce in the UK and we'll have a link in our show notes, but I think from that description you should be able to find it and And like I said, good use of an hour of your time. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkrmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please uh, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to the archives of all of our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question you want answered or a, uh, an idea for a, an upcoming episode, please uh, email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating this podcast or writing a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, 
A lawyer's guide to collaboration tools and technologies. Smart ways to work together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report only on the Legal Talk Network.